JT readers. Uh, this is Josh Levitsky. I'm a transplant hepatologist at Northwestern in Chicago. And with me today is Rosalind Roz Manon from University of Alabama, Birmingham, who will be joining me today and for future podcasts to go over the key articles in AJT. And Roz, uh, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Josh. Great to be here. Terrific. So this month we're going to be going, or this podcast is going to be reviewing the Editor's Choice articles for the July edition of AJT. And I'm just going to quickly go over the titles of each before we dive into each article themselves. And today I'll be discussing two articles and Roz will be doing two other articles. The first two articles, the first title is Survival Benefit of Accepting Livers from Deceased Donors Over 70 Years Old. Uh, this is from Haugen et al. I'll be going over that. And there's an editorial on this paper by Volk and Apt that is uh, really excellent and worth reviewing. And the second paper is entitled Variables of Importance in the Scientific Registry of Transplant Recipients database predictive of heart transplant weightless mortality by, don't want to pronounce the name wrong, but it's spelled H-S-I-C-H et al. And that's a heart transplant paper that has important weightless mortality, or it, it goes over weightless mortality variables that are important in heart transplant listing. And then the Roz will be going over two papers, one in basic science entitled Circulating Mitochondria in Organ Donors Promote Allograph Rejection by Lynn et al. And that also has an editorial that comments on this paper. And then the final one is the association between loss of Medicare, immunosuppressive medication use, and kidney transplant outcomes by Hart et al., which also has an editorial reviewing the results of that paper. Okay, so I'm going to go over the first two papers. The first paper that is entitled Survival Benefit of Accepting Livers from Deceased Donors Over 70 Years Old is by Haugen et al. and uh, Dori Segev's group from Johns Hopkins. And the premise of this paper is that a high percentage of patients waiting for liver transplantation die waiting. Um, and some places up to 30%, but the average is probably between 10 and 20%. And it's also known that a high percentage of patients who end up dying had declined at least one liver offer in the past. And the thought was that perhaps these candidates or the centers are declining these offers because they're more marginal livers from older donors, which were previously thought to be too risky for the candidate. And sort of the question that this paper, this work addresses uh, whether there is a decrement in survival in declining those graphs, specifically older graphs that are more than 70 years old, if there's a decrement in that patient's overall survival by declining those older graphs compared to waiting for the next one, meaning are they better off or worse off by taking those older graphs? And what this group did was use data from the SRTR, the Scientific Registry of Transplant Recipients, to study candidates who decline an old graft 
characterize outcomes after those declines and sort of look at this in terms of MELD score. So did this, were these outcomes related to how sick the patients were at transplant? And then do a comparative matching analysis to estimate the survival benefit associated with old graft offer acceptance versus decline. And so this course, SRTR, huge database of uh, all of our organ transplant recipients. And in this case, this was between 2009 and 2017. And over 24,000 candidates were listed during this time period. 1,311 accepted an older donor and were transplanted, while 23,000 declined that older donor. So you can see already that there's a high percentage of decline. So again, they looked at these outcomes and then did a survival benefit matching of those who accepted versus those who declined. And I'm not going to go through all of the statistical methodology and sensitivity results. And I'll try to summarize uh, the results, which were very important. So first off, the candidates who decline older graphs were, were different than, but by characteristics than those who accepted. So those who accepted older grafts had a higher MELD score, so they're more likely to accept because they're sicker waiting for a transplant. They're more likely to have NASH or alcoholic liver disease and less likely to have hepatitis C. I think this is important because the thought back then when hepatitis C was a real problem was to not place older grafts in patients who have hepatitis C. So that you can see is sort of what happened here. And then the, the group started to dive into the outcomes of those who declined. And there's a nice table or actually figure, figure one that shows the different MELD scores and what happened to these patients. And they found that about 50% of the patients had received a non old graft, two and a half percent received an older graft, they, meaning they eventually decided to take one. But 25% died without a transplant and 18% were removed from the wait list. And only a small percentage were on the wait list. So you can see that those who had declined that initial offer, 25% of them eventually ended up dying. So the question again is whether there's a survival benefit potentially of, of taking that initial older donor. And when they matched them, they showed that candidates who accepted versus declined an older graft had a overall five-year cumulative mortality of 23% compared to 41% with the decline. And um, after adjustment, those candidates who accepted the older graft experienced nearly a two-fold reduction in mortality compared to those who declined the same old graft offer. And this was consistent also on the sensitivity analysis. So the bottom line is, and this, this actually had benefit from MELD scores from 15 until 40. So um, of all MELD scores across the board, there was a mortality benefit of accepting an older donor compared to declining and waiting. And this just shows you how sick these patients are that the impact of declining organ transplant. And in this case, it also shows that older donors are, have very acceptable outcomes. Um, I think this also started to occur in the area of being able to cure hepatitis C from this patient population and some advances in management. But the bottom line is that it seems 
that it's highly beneficial for candidates to take older donors rather than pass on them and wait because there's, there's a significant survival benefit. Uh, the question does occur from, because this is SRTR data, we don't have a lot of granularity to it, but I think one question is, is whether the decision to decline came from the patient or the transplant center. We really don't know, but I think uh, one could envision showing these survival curves uh, to transplant centers and patients and trying to emphasize so that they're educated that by declining a transplant, in this case, older, older donors, even though they may have some marginal increased risk, they're potentially increasing their mortality by waiting. Uh, and I, I think this really has important applications to using these donors and improving our waitlist survival. So I think that was really interesting, and uh, we'll see if, what kind of impact this, this has, but it's really uh, an important paper. The next paper I'm going to talk about relatively briefly, this is a heart transplant paper, similarly looking at waitlist mortality. And this group from uh, different centers, uh, the lead author, Eileen Hsich, H-S-I-C-H, is from the Cleveland Clinic, and this was a group called THEMIS, which is Transplantation of Hearts to Maximize Survival, an investigative team that is well-funded to look at improving waitlist mortality and heart transplant. And uh, the premise behind this is that allocation of donor hearts in the U.S. is based on a tiered system that prioritizes candidates by risk of death while on the waitlist. So it's really medical urgency. And recently, it went from a three to six tier system. And one of the questions is, are the way in which heart transplant patients are prioritized into different statuses according to their urgency, are, the, are all of the variables that these patients um, have while waiting on the list, are all of those being incorporated into this waitlist mortality and prioritizing them. And so what this group did is take all of the patients that were active on the waitlist for heart transplant in SRTR from 2004 to 2015 and look at several variables that are currently included in the system that prioritize these patients, but also looked at several other variables that are not included to really see are, is the current system appropriately in, including uh, the right variables. And of course, this was done in the era in which there were only three tiers, which is status 1A, 1B, and 2. And uh, that's because this was just recently changed to six tiers. For all intents and purposes, uh, all of these variables are similar. And so the bottom line is that they, when looking at all of these variables, they found those that were most predictive of survival and those that were less predictive. And they go through a, a long list of those that were most predictive. And most of these are actually in the, are in the current system. But uh, interestingly, there were two variables that are not incorporated into the current system to prioritize patients that were very predictive of survival. The first was estimated GFR, which, of course, when patients are in heart failure, um, the degree of their heart failure often correlates with their uh, renal function, sort of a, a um, cardiorenal syndrome. And there was, a, there was a direct correlation between estimated GFR and survival and heart transplant. 
for all uh, status 1A and 2 candidates. And then the other one that was also additionally interesting was serum albumin. And this had a very direct correlation, just like estimated GFR with survival on the, on the heart transplant wait list. Presumably, again, a multitude of factors reflecting nutritional state, perhaps liver synthetic function from congestion, catabolism, inflammation, whatever it is, the, the low albumin was predictive of heart transplant weightless mortality. And so the authors uh, suggest that the current system really needs to look at this and potentially incorporate these new variables that are just as important as other things like ECMO and LVAD and whether the patients are in the unit, et cetera. And um, kind of reminds me of what we went through with liver, with MELD and having serum creatinine be, be important. And we know that albumin and liver transplant uh, very similarly is, while it's not in our allocation, that correlates with survival on the transplant wait list. So well done study. Um, I think the results of which are, will be addressed by the heart transplant groups and the, and the, and UNOS and to maybe relook at the, these, uh, allocation systems to incorporate these new variables. So d- does heart allocation involve dialysis as a variable or not? I do not believe so. Yeah. So, yeah. I mean, it's interesting to see this, you know, very large, well done study, you know, sort of amplify the sort of clinical feelings when we're rounding and on consult on those on those potential patients as potential recipients where there's a lot of you know we spend a lot of time going heart alone or heart and dialysis or heart kidney so I, i'm just interested I'll, I'll have to take a look at that paper if you look at the current system a lot of it is cardi- is basically almost all cardiac factors and and patient demographics and really not a whole lot That's outside of the heart yeah, yeah. Very much so. Well, let me let me keep the energy going. Um, I'll do the next paper. It's by uh, Lynn and colleagues from Duke University and Cedar Sinai. Circulating mitochondria and organ donors promote allograft rejection, and there was also an accompanying editorial. So this study examines the effect of mitochondria that are present in brain dead donor circulation, and it's based on an observation by this group recently published last year that demonstrated the presence of circulating mitochondria in brain-dead donors and also correlated the level of plasma mitochondrial DNA to early allograft liver dysfunction. And so this is really a mechanistic study um, to understand that phenomena better uh, using a combination of methods. They use both in vitro methods as well as in vivo methods to study initially the impact of circulating mitochondria on graft dysfunction. They use a mouse model, a well-characterized heart allograft model. They had multiple groups. Donors, donor mice were exposed to these purified mitochondria the day before their, do- their organs were uh, taken. In this model, the, the rejecting allograft, which is fully MHC disparate between donor and recipient, occurs about day 10. And to prolong survival, you use a treatment with CTLA-4IG, which can get survival out to 100 days. When donor hearts that had been exposed to mitochondria were transplanted to these allograft recipients, their graft survival could not be prolonged with CTLA-4IG. And in fact, their graft failure rate was about a third of that. It was down to about 20 days, although slightly longer than the uh, untreated with CTLA-4IG. And these mitochondrial-treated grafts have more inflammation and higher grades of rejection. 
And then they go on to look at the mechanism of this in, in, in vitro in cells. They first start with mouse endothelial cells, expose them briefly for maybe 12 to 18 hours to different doses of um, uh, isolated mitochondria. And they demonstrate that these endothelial cells upregulate expression of their adhesion molecules like ICAM-1, uh, VCAM, and E-selectin, you know, molecules that are important in attracting inflammatory cell infiltrates and, and demonstrate that this was a dose response effect. And that at the highest dose of mitochondrial incubation, they will also stimulate the expression of MHC class two on these endothelial cells. Um, and they also demonstrate that T cells were more adherent to endothelial cells when they've been pre-exposed to mitochondria, although maybe not to the level when they maximally activated endothelial cells, say with TNF. They also replicate these findings in human endothelial cells that were taken from the aorta. Um, again, these cells were exposed to purified mitochondria overnight. There was increased expression of adhesion molecules and, and exposed endothelium made higher levels of pro-inflammatory cytokines. And interestingly, this appears to be a contact-specific phenomena when they separate the mitochondria from the cells uh, in vitro um, with a separation barrier. Uh, there is no effect. Um, it's not a secreted factor from the mitochondria per se. It's a direct contact effect. And if they block actin cytoskeleton in the co-cultures, the endothelial cells are not able to take up the mitochondria. And they actually did confocal of these endothelial cells and demonstrate that these exogenous mitochondria actually co-localize um, in the endothelial cells with endogenous mitochondria. And finally, they take uh, peripheral blood mononuclear cells from normal humans, co-incubate them with these activated endothelial cells and compare them to non-activated, non-mitochondrial exposed endothelial cells and demonstrate more T-cell adhesion. They also show in one panel in this paper that mouse dendritic cells are also capable of taking up uh, mitochondria in vitro and that there's active upregulation of co-stimulatory molecules like CD86 and CD40 that are important in activating L-specific T-cells. So, uh, you know, why is this paper significant? Well, the authors here demonstrate a very novel mechanism of innate immunity that can lead to crosstalk with alloadaptive immunity. And specifically, they look at mitochondria as a, a danger-associated molecular pattern or DAMP. Um, and this is kind of an immediate effect that we would expect in the first few days of transplantation. And they hypothesize that these activated endothelial cells can really enhance T-cell trafficking to the graft, leading to graft infiltration. And granted, it's not the first paper that's shown a damp has led to T-cell activation, but it's really one that is focused intensively on the mitochondria. And their work suggests maybe potential therapies focused on mitochondria to improve early graft function. That is whether it's therapy to block mitochondrial uptake or block mitochondrial scavenging receptors. I mean, these would be novel therapies to improve outcome. The accompanying editorial by Anna Volushkik from uh, Cleveland Clinic um, supports and is excited about these findings as much as I am. Uh, she also points out that to not overlook the role of the dendritic cell, that they have a very nice figure in the paper that is a cartoon, figure nine, that is their hypothesized mechanism and suggests that, that dendritic cells should not be overlooked. And, and importantly, what's not clear in this paper is the actual mechanism. Is it, is it actual whole mitochondria? Yes, they are being phagocytosed, but it could be, it be mitochondrial fragments or, or mitochondrial DNA 
that's actually the trigger to endothelial cells. And there are other models such as a TLR9 knockout that is very specific for mitochondrial DNA that could be a subject of another study. A final clinical comment about the paper is really when this mechanism would take place. And donor kidneys, like all organs, are typically flushed and they're perfused after explant and they're perfused again before implantation. So the presence of circulating donor dendritic cells would be quite limited in the recipient. And, and also there's re-endothelialization after transplant over a period of time with host uh, endothelium. So how much this mechanism would lead to graft dysfunction due to rejection early on and how it's affected by immunosuppression really remains a question, but there's clearly more to come from this group regarding this phenomenon. Um, yeah, it's really, uh, I just, I was kind of blown away just from the novelty of it. And I wasn't really aware of, you know, mitochondria being involved in the immune response. And I, it sort of struck me that, and I, when you mentioned mitochondrial DNA, this whole uh, interest in cell-free DNA as being maybe not just a marker of graft injury, but it may actually stimulate an antigenic response. Yeah. 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 Possibility. Well, good points, Josh. Uh, I'll go ahead and transition to the next paper. This is a paper by Allison Hart and colleagues from the University of Minnesota, SRTR and Hennepin Healthcare Research Institute. The association between loss of Medicare, uh, immunosuppressive medication use, and kidney transplant outcomes. So, just as a background for the non nephrologist, um, end stage renal disease patients qualify for Medicare coverage for both dialysis and transplant. But when a patient is, and that's for the lifetime of dialysis, but when a patient is transplanted, they're only provided three years of coverage for their immunosuppressive therapy. And that was extended, I think, in the early 90s, like 93, from one year to three year. And then in 2000, the benefit for Medicare for life, for permanency, was extended to those over 65 and those disabled. And I think that this loss of coverage at three years has really perplexed transplant centers and practicing clinicians. And we've long identified patients at risk for non-adherence. And there's been an intense public policy effort by the societies and patient groups to try to uh, convince Capitol Hill to change this legislation and, provi- and provide long-term Medicare coverage for immunosuppressive therapy. But after probably about 12 presidencies of AST, it really has not gone through. So there are prior studies that have correlated the effects of, of Medicare on outcome. A paper by John Gill a couple of years ago identified that individuals with private insurance had better outcomes than those that were on Medicare alone, even when you controlled for race. Um, work by a colleague of blessed memory, Roger Evans, in 2010, uh, did a survey of transplant centers, and probably about two-thirds of centers were really concerned of the cost of therapy and the, and the impact of non-adherence when there was loss of Medicare. A more recent study by Dan Brennan and colleagues was not able, though, to identify a specific racial impact, uh, impact on uh, loss of lifetime uh, coverage uh, on racial disparities and graft outcomes. But that study was limited in that it didn't look at the timing of the loss, and it didn't directly look at the immunosuppressive drug use and the etiologies of this loss. So these investigators take this 
problem a step forward in examining it. And they look at a, a seven-year period from 2008 to 2014, and they merge a number of databases. They take all the kidney transplant patients in the SRTR during that time. They match them to the USRDS database, which identifies recipients on Medicare at the time of transplant, uh, ending up with a cohort of about 80,000 individuals. And then they align or merge those subjects with what's called the Symphony Pharmacy Data Claims Database, which is an integrated database that incorporates dispensed medications on Medicare. And then they, they, are, they create a, a variable called time, uh, the time period of loss. And so they call the time early as being before the three years, the mandated three years of, of provide provision, on time, which is that around uh, uh, three years, and then those that lose it late, which was any time beyond three years. Uh, and they only included individuals that were on Medicare at the time of the analysis. And they also look at immunosuppressive drug refills through a variable called the medication possession ratio or MPR. They define this as the sum of days um, that were supplied divided by the days at risk for filling. Um, And then they calculate this ratio every month for each subject, as well as identifying their Medicare status each month. So they can correlate in an individual's timing of whether they have Medicare, yes, no, and what their MPR is doing. So what are the important findings? I'll cut to the chase. They identify that about 40% lose their Medicare around the time you'd expect. About 2.5% lose the Medicare coverage before the three years, and about 8% lose their coverage late. Younger recipients that are defined as ages 13 to 39 and African Americans were more likely to lose their Medicare early. And household income had an impact in such that higher, higher median household income was associated with a higher risk of on-time Medicare loss or expected Medicare loss. With regards to drug refills, early and late Medicare loss was associated with uh, lower subsequent medication possession ratios compared to those who had Medicare um, or who did not have Medicare loss. And this was true. They looked at both the class, whether it's an anti-metabolite or calcineurin inhibitor, um, and even in the context of generic use. On-time loss of your Medicare after three years did not appear to have any impact on your NPR or your medication possession ratio. I think the most even more astounding uh, numbers are shown by the impact on graft survival and Medicare loss. Early Medicare loss was associated with a hazard ratio of graft loss of about 11 to 17 times higher uh, compared to those with no Medicare loss. And while this effect was attenuated in late Medicare loss, the graph failure hazard ratio was 2.5 to 8.4 times higher than those with intact coverage. So when you lose Medicare coverage on time, your rate of graph failure was similar to those who were on Medicare for all three years and still on it. So to put this in perspective, this is really a study that has strong data, very well executed, Um, across the entire U.S. that demonstrates a strong risk of graft failure and a reduction in your immunosuppressive refills when you lose Medicare early before you're allotted three years. And it's not like losing it late is any better news. That also has an effect, but the effect appears attenuated. I think that these results need to shake up the kidney transplant community, um, and I hope it gets us to take a little bit more action I think the analysis highlights underappreciated issues in the current atmosphere where it's been difficult over 12 years to get this bill to extend Medicare. 
I think in part this has been hung up on the notion of calculating the cost of long-term drug provision compared to the cost of dialysis and taking care of of how that might actually save money. Um, That's not the way a bill is scored. It's scored based on how much it's going to cost. I think the authors recommend that though these results are astounding, they were honest in tempering it in seeing what the impact of the Affordable Care Act would be and including individuals that were disabled with intact. And they also, I'm sorry, included individuals that were disabled with intact Medicare. The study highlights the timing of loss of Medicare has a different effect over time. And so you may not be able to just say no Medicare at all. And it's a cost effect that you have to sort of look at the timing of Medicare loss and see its cost effectiveness when you're doing your analysis. And finally, and importantly, they suggest that just extending the Medicare benefit alone is insufficient, that there, this can't be like a blanket fix, that there needs to be some value or some kind of safety net in, in such legislation, because obviously people may not be able to afford the Medicare premiums or the Medicare co-pays. Um, And that's why they led to early loss or even late loss. And finally, in the accompanying editorial, um, Dr. Grubbs from UCSF really identifies a rather harsh truth. And and that is that the life expectancy um, on dialysis is is about half that of being on a transplant. And so is it conceivable that elected officials are banking on the fact that individuals who cost more than transplant um, on dialysis have an expected shorter life expectancy. And so rather than us articulating an economic and ethical argument and rationale, perhaps it has to be a more emotional appeal to our elected officials to make an implemented change. So uh, again, I think this is really terrific data coming at a really great time when uh, Medicare itself is really evaluating uh, how it funds uh, end-stage renal disease care. Um, and I'm glad that uh, we were able to highlight this paper today on the podcast. Great. Thanks, Roz. Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what kind of bandwidth this has in terms of some public policy and just showing that we actually now have data on this issue that can be presented to our to our government. And also whether this also is seen in you know other organ transplants, too. I hope the group is going to be looking at other other uh, organ transplant situations and, and loss of Medicare. Um, I should note that this study is going to be featured on the cover of the July AJT edition, which will be coming out very soon. So very important paper. And anyway, I think we're going to wrap up here. I want to thank Roz for uh, an in-depth analysis of, of those papers. And um, Really some exciting stuff coming out in AJT. I encourage the readers to review these, uh, read these articles and their editorials and the rest of AJT that's coming out soon in July. And we will be back in a month to go into a uh, deeper dive into the uh, August articles. And again, Roz, thanks for joining. And um, we will uh, see you next month. The opinions of the hosts of the show do not necessarily reflect those of the American Journal of Transplantation. For AJT highlights, you can find us online at amjtransplant.com. That's amjtransplant.com. And follow us on Facebook and Twitter.